full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I don't qualify for anything because for a family of three, you can't make more than $328 a month. Who lives off of $328 a month? So I make just enough to not qualify for any of these benefits, not for myself, not for my children, as far as Medicaid is concerned. And if Affordable Care Act was not available to me, I really don't know what else I would do. Shed a tear for the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. Congress and the Trump White House are burning the midnight oil to scrap slash dilute slash asterisk to death the signature policy achievement of the previous administration. Millions of recipients could be in limbo. We talked to one. Stay with us. This week's broadcast, the full disclosure made possible by my good friends at Elwood Thompson since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwood's and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us in studio, Christy Albus, a junior kindergarten teacher, mother of two teenage boys, 12-year cancer survivor, and beneficiary of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, as well as Caroline Orr, behavioral scientist who's covered health behavior and policy and has closely watched the Affordable Care Act. Welcome to Full Disclosure. Thank you. Thank you. Christy Albus, um, I know this is a sensitive subject, uh, but you've been to a certain degree open about it. Um, offline, we spoke, and uh, I've met you before, at least online. You have been living with the cancer diagnosis now for, what, 13 years? Yeah, it'll be going on 13 years this year. To the extent you're comfortable, give us the background of what happened, when it happened, how old you are, if you're comfortable sharing that. Yeah, I'm I'm 43 years old, so um, close to my 30th birthday, I was, this was back in 2004, um, just started having some breathing problems and wasn't sure what was going on. And they kept treating me for asthma. And um, long story short, they found a tumor in my trachea. And it was closing up my airway. Um, It's adenoid cystic carcinoma, which is actually a really rare cancer. They did a tracheal resectioning where they removed a whole section of my trachea. And they stitched the rest of my trachea back together. I always say, like, my war story is um, they stitched my chin down to my chest for about three weeks so I couldn't move my neck. And it was it was pretty crazy. Um, the tumor was also in my esophagus and wrapped around my right vocal cord, which is why I kind of made the joke that I sound like a grizzly bear sometimes. You sound quite mellifluous, and I'm amazed how great you sound. (laughs) And incidentally, you work in in radio as well, and And your free time is a hobby, which I think is so admirable. But tell me, how were you covered? Where were you working when you were 30 and you got this diagnosis? Um, Mm -hmm. How did you pay for it? How did insurance handle it? Okay, so I was under my husband at the time. Um, I was under his insurance, and he actually worked for a pharmaceutical company. We uh, were covered under Cigna at the time, which is a private insurance company. This was in 2004, so this was Bush administration. We did um, notice very quickly after about a year premiums for my insurance skyrocketing. And um, our funds deplenishing very quickly, our inability to pay bills so wait, um, do you recall what he was paying? He was he was getting an employee-sponsored plan where mm-hmm. they ostensibly covered part of it. Right. And you're coughing up, no pun intended, Jesus. <laughs> but you're paying more and more of it. Uh, you're seeing the premiums get higher or yes. you're seeing out of the pocket get higher. Do you remember any of the numbers? I know um, it's it's kind of, yeah. you tried to repress some of it. I, I don't remember, like I the out-of-the-pocket po- out definitely got higher. Um, you know, I went through treatments where I had radiation. I had to get a scan every day. A CT scan can cost, you know, if you don't have insurance, that's a $6,000 a day procedure. Um, I noticed insurance may be covering uh, all but maybe $400 of it. And then all of a sudden it covered all but $2,000 of it. And then all of a sudden I was getting, 
you know, $3,000 a day bills that I was going to have to pay. $3,000 a day. I mean, this was this was um, an eight-week treatment as well. Were you working at I, I was I was on um, I actually uh, about a year after I was diagnosed I was put on disability, which was um, nice because I had that Medicare as my secondary which helped, um, but the only reason why I was put on that was because I had a cancer that was probably going to kill me in about five years. It was a very aggressive cancer. And so they felt like I wasn't going to live very long, and they, they, I qualified for the disability. Um, once I got past that five-year mark, I, I lost that Medicare coverage very quickly. It was my secondary to the primary. Do you recall what you spent plus or minus in those Absolutely five years? Absolutely, I do. Um, we were paying down probably close— Maybe a little over six hundred some thousand dollars. And versus your net worth or your income and everything else. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we we um, were just about thrown into bankruptcy because of it. How does I just let me, I, I just want to get an understanding? How does a person raise six hundred thousand? We you, you don't. I'm still paying medical bills twelve years later. Um, I was put on a lot of payment plans. I mean, you're getting bills every month of. Three, four thousand dollars every month. Every month, I got bills like that for two, three years, and would try to get on a payment plan, would try to pay things off. But then you're with a hospital that, when your, um, when your record is at the end of the year old and your bill is not paid off, they send you automatically to collectors. Mm. So a lot of hospitals will clean out their accounts. And send the old accounts that are unpaid off to collectors. So then I had slews of collection agencies then sending me the balance of these unpaid bills. And it just, everything just got kind of lost in the shuffle. Professor Caroline or RVA Wonk, if I may, I want to kind of pause and help me work this out. Suppose Christy had been working, she and her husband or some combination thereof for five or six years and paying into that and not being not depleting, not being a net drainer of the company insurance plans. Um, isn't that part of the social compact? Like you think you're giving into us, this is a rainy day scenario. It's almost a death sentence. What happened there? What do people understand? Um, what is what is universal about that? That's how insurance is supposed to work. We're supposed to pay into it for a rainy day. It's not something nobody plans on needing to use the maximum benefits that they have. Nobody plans on on reaching what, at that point, it would have been allowed that she would have had a, a possible lifetime or annual cap but on, Cigna, on benefits. But Cigna's massive. You would think it's a it's a deep lake and that one person like this would not deplete. I oh, mean, she, it wouldn't be as wouldn't. draconian as it is. It should not be. That's the way things really were. Um, you spoke about bankruptcy and um, for years unpaid medical bills were the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. More than unpaid mortgages, more than unpaid credit card bills were unpaid medical bills. So Do people, I mean, in your experience, and you, you're, you, know, you look at the behavioral element of this and the expectations versus the delivery of uh, healthcare in the country with obviously the expenditures far exceed any other developed country. Do people realize that you can just max out so quickly in case a catastrophic thing happens, and and, and then it would effectively recourse to your personal balance sheet. I don't think so. I don't think people even a lot of times go there in thought because it's it, it's again it's something that most people don't think they're going to need. That's why the issue over the individual mandate has been such a fight because a lot of people will not buy insurance until they need it if we don't have something like a mandate. They'll wait until they're sick. But the problem is then you're not paying into that system like you were just talking about. So no, most people most people don't consider that. It's a sort of odd risk calculation, but it's 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 something most people don't go through and 
most people certainly do not realize how quickly it can turn into losing your home, losing your car, losing your savings, that, that your insurance company won't just have your back because you have insurance. Christy, what did you think the safety net was after this? You'd mentioned that with disability that some element of Medicare kicked in. I, we all expect true. in the back of our minds that there is a... We know that disability, we know that if something catastrophic happens, if, you know, God forbid, a storm wipes us out or something, there's Medicaid there. We know that if if there's a depression, that ultimately there's there was aid to families with dependent children and food stamps. What was your discovery process in this for uh, the safety net elements for your catastrophic illness? I have to be honest. It was like amazing how I got on disability because honestly, it's one of the hardest things to qualify for. And I actually was friends with a disability lawyer. And it was only because of that that he was able to kind of fight for me. I have these networking groups. And, of course, back then this was before Facebook. But I had these networking groups within my cancer groups through the hospital and everything where people were like, how did you get disability? How can I do this? And Everybody was kind of dealing with these medical bills and this um, kind of this out of control. Every day you have to go in for treatments. Every day you're getting slammed with $6,000 of of treatments and your insurance company is only going to pay but so much. So people were like, how did you get this? What can I do to qualify for this? So to me, I don't think that it's a – it wasn't a simple process, at least back then. And I think the only reason why I got it was my friend who was the lawyer basically said, I think the only reason why they're giving it to you is because you're young and you have children and you weren't given a very good prognosis because the doctors have to fill out everything. So I think to them, in a weird way, they were like, yeah, we'll give it to her because she's not going to last long anyway. And I tell you what, I did last long. And as soon as they realized that, I was quickly taken off of it. So. So tell me about your children. At the time, I mean, I, I, I kind of back of the envelope, this is around the time you had your sons. Yeah, they were one and three years old at the time. And they were on their dad's family insurance plan too? That's right. Mm-hmm. So what happened after, I don't want to get into personal family stuff, yeah. but the divorce, I mean, did they, they were allowed to stay on their dad's plan? Um, actually, no. What happened was, um, you know, of course they were allowed to stay on his plan after we divorced. Um, but then he lost his job. And so then I had to figure out insurance for them. How does one figure out insurance for them? Well, thankfully, because of Affordable Care Act, I was able to get insurance for them. But that's 2010. And I'm thinking between 2004 and 2010. I just want to see how, you know, a a mother-tested kind of to her limits. Not only do you yeah. have to worry about your own health and oh, yeah. banish the thought, the mortality, but getting your sons covered, right? Is there a default plan? I mean, it, I, as I under, always understood it, you're you're okay if you are significantly liquid enough to afford good health insurance or one Absolutely. of these gold-plated plans, or you're poor enough to fall into the Medicaid plan, right. or states have a, you know, um, a block grant case-by-case case example where they can do this, and, and Caroline will get us into this as well. So what what kind of options did you have for them, especially I, now that your husband didn't have work? Yeah, I didn't have any options for them. To let them go uncovered? Right. Well, my option for them was either my husband's COBRA policy through his insurance, which was extremely expensive as well, or nothing. And they were cobra for a, a number of years. And then... Um, you know, did be- you just did you just roll this over on the credit card debt? I mean, how did you take that all on? In um, addition, so the stuff is still accruing from your let's oh, say six hundred thousand yes. dollar absolutely ordeal. But then you also have to pay for your sons. Were you uncovered at that point after no. disability expired? Um, no, absolutely not. I was working at that point, mm-hmm. so I was able to get my own employer insurance. So how does it work when you go in with a significant pre existing condition? Yeah, in a pool like that. So uh, fortunately for me. Um, I was able, this was, I was able to get um, coverage through my full-time job after um, Affordable Care Act. So until then, I was still covered under my husband's insurance, and we were all kind of cobra in the policy at that point. Do you remember what COBRA cost? 
Um, I really don't. Um, uh, it's, it's fairly expensive. I want to say it was probably close to about $800 a month, mm-hmm. if not more. I was going to have to pay that much, you know, for my children at my job hmm. through my employer insurance. And I, there's no way I could have afforded that. Well, Caroline Orr, we do see that there was a report came out this week um, as the House GOP leadership is debating uh, uh, th- this plan that seems to be crystallizing by late week to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. Uh, according to Standard & Poor's, up to 10 million Americans could lose their health insurance under this plan, which is called the American Health Care Act, AHCA. It's taken on various you know, nicknames on the internet, Obamacare 0.5, Obamacare Lite, whatever you want to call it. Um, What's your read on all this? What is the, I mean, first walk me back. I mean, Obamacare was passed with a lot of consternation and a lot of friction in 2010. And and it was almost like a Pyrrhic victory for the Obama administration because it ticked off an enormous number of people in the wake of the financial crisis, um, wealthier Americans who resented the fact that they were being taxed to help expand Medicaid for poor Americans, younger people who were told effectively you have to buy coverage to shore up the system for older, sicker people. What was the what was like the the cardinal sin? What in your experience do you find was the most offensive thing about that that made it so easy to vilify? I think it was a combination of attaching it to an existing st- sort of simmering resentment of of President Obama. Was it really a t- I mean calling it Obamacare was intentional. That that was not an accident that it ended up being called Obamacare. But That was, it coincided with the Tea Party movement, with their backlash against big government, and Obamacare came to be the symbol of big government, of intrusion. I don't know if there was a, you know, one specific provision. I know they really latched on to, the critics of Obamacare really latched on to, um, President Obama's comment about being able to keep your plan if you like your plan, and then not everybody. I remember for talking points, the two things that were chiefly polarizing, and this is going back into 2010, early 2010. I was a new father then, so I was in the haze of of early fatherhood. But the public option was a radioactive phrase and death panels. And death panels was something that Gosh, you could not have come up with a more villainous thing. If you imagine people coming together and deciding someone like, you know, if they, I guess, Christy, if they wanted to turn you away from it, like, you know, you're, you're worthwhile or you're not worthwhile. And it turns out that you got disability through a quirk that someone effectively said, well, yeah, flick her a nickel. Yeah. So going back to it, and I know this is a lot of navel gazing, but we are on the brink of Congress potentially scrapping the entire thing. I don't know what the one provision was or if there was one provision, but it, it did come to symbolize this big government. Uh, all of it sort of became wrapped up in a mythology and it got to the point where people weren't looking at what it was doing or what it could do for them, but they were hearing these talking points about death panels they, they were but here's my here's my question really to you, what, and it's kind of a bifurcated question. I've never met anybody who's really in love with their health insurance plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's like national pastime to bitch about it. I find that I get nickel and dimes. Right, Al Gore ran on this thing in 2000. He said HMO stands for hand the money over. Right, we always complain about it. It's not one of those things. Unlike uh, a broker who you really love, or an asset manager, or mutual fund thing, or. Um, you know, a club membership or something. It's kind of like, oh, it's a, it is what it is, and I can expect that infl- it's going to inflate at high single digits or loads double digits every year, and then I'm going to get nickel and dime. HR is going to send me a letter, and whatnot. But then the other element of that is, I was always told in economics class, in sociology class, that entitlements are sticky that there is a, a ratchet effect. Once you do that, for example, the prescription drug. Medicare plan under George W. Bush, which was expensive unto itself, long since forgotten, simultaneous to, I think, when Christie was diagnosed. You try taking that away. You try pulling the bone from the dog's mouth. What went wrong here? You think if you would give Americans across the board one less concern and, and buy them job portability and buy them job mobility, that they would 
covet that and that they would not answer, to, I think, to the siren song of, of vilification. Well, and that's what's interesting when you look at it, when you ask people about the specific provisions under Obamacare. So do you like that they can, that insurers can no longer deny people with pre-existing conditions? Do you like that um, young adults can stay on their insurance plans for longer? Do you like that these essential um, preventive health benefits have to be covered with no additional out-of-pocket costs? Vast majority of people like those provisions and don't want to see them go away. That's been true throughout the life cycle of the Affordable Care Act. So even when public opinion of the Affordable Care Act was underwater, when more people didn't like it than did like it, they still liked the individual provisions of it. So that's what really tells me that there is something, again, also people will will respond differently if you ask them if you like the Affordable Care Act versus if you like Obamacare. you'll get different approval ratings. So there, there is something about the idea of Obamacare more than... But here's a, here's a question, and both of you chime in on this. What makes Medicare so different? What makes Medicare sacrosanct? Like, I never understood in college that it's, you pretty much, you know, if you can make it to 65, you're good. And it's not really means tested as far as I know. I mean, you make it to 65, everybody's eligible for it. And it's almost looked at as a savings plan, almost like a 401k. I put into it, ergo, I should be able to draw from it. But we don't treat children that way. We don't, I mean, Christie's boys were not, you know, for kinder care. I don't know if we come up with something like that. But we also know through the ARP and, and various people in history that older people vote. And we know that the depression laid many people low and, and, a lot of these programs came out of the New Deal and the Great Society. Um, what makes, you know, and I know I'm getting into a bigger thing here, what makes universal coverage in this country so kind of toxic? Whether we are discussing it in 1993 in the Harry and whatever ads, whether we're discussing it in 2009, 2010 and, and things like death panels, what is it about the United States that, that you know, so anathema? can't remember who was talking about this the other day, but somebody was just talking about the, the issue of socialism and how that has become such a, a, a dirty word in the United States and how people don't consider that things like Medicare, Social Security are forms of socialism. But are those looked at as things where don't call that socialism because I put money into it. You garnished my wages throughout my life and I have a statement saying that. Whereas something like this was you're taking something, it's a transfer payment. You're taking it from the wealthy and this is what I want to know. I think that's what, I think the people who are proponents of the single payer um, healthcare taxpayer system is it's sort of in that vein where, you know, you can almost save, you put trillions and trillions of dollars into an insurance company. You put trillions and trillions of dollars into co-pays and out-of-pocket expenses, or you can put some of that money, which is actually, they have, economists have actually drawn out maps of what we're doing now with our money versus if we were a single-payer healthcare system how much money would go now a single payer are you, are you taking that kind of as the example of like a Canada or an Israel like a universal health care plan where everybody is paying in and drawing from the same right, system they're kind of paying that money into a government funded health care program mm. and they've done a lot of studies where we're actually going to spend less money doing that than we are what we're doing now when we're paying into private insurance. What and... was your worst case recourse? I'm sorry to relive this, but I think <laughs> no, we want to get to we want to get to understand like right. the if then scenarios. Between diagnosis and the time Obamacare was ratified and you got to get that card in the mail where you were finally eligible for private insurance with a government backstop or subsidy, what were your options? Uh, I want to know worst case options like Medicaid. I'm, I want to know what would have, you know, what would have happened, for example, if you got Canadian citizenship. How? What? Give me the granularity of 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 outcomes I and mean, options. You know, my options. If I didn't, if I did not have the health care that I did, first of all, they can't deny you health care. You can get a gunshot wound and go in the hospital and 
you don't have health insurance, they still have to treat you. Um, but is that an ER thing? I mean, that, if you that, show yeah, up for ER. a, a CAT scan type thing, that's it's true. on an emergency show, CAT scan? The, the thing is, it's, it's yeah, I see, I see your point there. I mean, are they going to deny me what I need for treatments and whatnot? I, I'm, I don't really know. I know that I've not been able to pay a lot of my bills, and I still have to go in. But there's that there's that that becomes like the default almost freehand death panel. Yeah. The mar- the market's own death panel thing by situationally. You don't have to have a bunch of people and you know dressed as as Dracula saying this, but it's an awful question to ask, but who is the one ar- who is the arbiter when you're coming in it's like, look, I'm past you. I really need to get a blood cell count. I really need to get a CT scan. Right. I really would like to see an endocrinologist. And yes, I have a bankruptcy behind me. I have hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of outstanding bills. I'm on a payment plan. Is there an option as awful as draconian as it is to, to fall into the poverty bracket to get taken care of better than you would Absolutely. kind of scrape, scraping along the lower middle class? I'm going to, and I'm going to definitely address that because I make too much to qualify for Medicaid. I make too much, you know, I make about, um, my salary is probably about 30 some thousand a year, and I'm supporting two kids on that. And um, I actually went through that. I went through Department of Social Services to see what I could qualify for, especially for my children. And I was given the answer that no on TANF, no on SNAP, no on... No, break those out for me. No on what? um, SNAP would be the food benefits. The food stamps? Um, TANF would be emergency relief. You Mm -hmm. know, and I... this is, you know, I'm a single mom with two boys and um, bills are racking in and I can't pay them, you know, especially my medical bills that mm-hmm. still kind of come in. I have a treatable cancer, not a curable cancer. Um, and so a lot of that, you know, people go to the doctor when they're sick and they'll get maybe a $100, $120 bill and that's fine. I consistently get $500 bills. Um, every other month or so. What was involved in the regimen when you realized this was chronic, that you had to show up, that you keep, you you know, you couldn't just ignore it. You had to monitor it, especially if it's a life or death. It is, it is, it is definitely life or death. Um, Going back to like what I was saying, when I tried to apply for some, for some relief, some financial relief and through social services, they told me that I don't qualify for anything because for a family of three, you can't make more than $328 a month. So who lives off of $328 a month? So I make just enough to not qualify for any of these benefits, not for myself, not for my children, as far as Medicaid is concerned. And so, yeah, lower middle class, here you're stuck. What are your options? What are your options at that point? Um, Bills are constantly rolling in. I consistently have to go and for medical care and medical checkups and updates and that never stops. So um, if Affordable Care Act was not available to me, if I didn't have those those options, um, I really don't know what else I would do. I, I don't think I would get the care that I would need. I was thinking of you when I read something today, if I can just uh, read this, this came out on the CNN wire uh, through Wisconsin. Two years ago, Tiffany Kohler, after losing her job, did something she always had wanted to do. She ran for a seat in the Wisconsin State Assembly. She lost, and in the aftermath of that disappointment, got some awful news. She had cancer. Kohler had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I was stage four, she says. My prognosis was poor. I wasn't supposed to survive, she said. When she lost her job, she got health insurance through the Affordable Care Act marketplace, but she soon found that the $400 monthly bill was too high for someone who was unemployed. So she dropped Obamacare and opted for Medicaid under Wisconsin's Badger Care Plus program. It is the only state in the U.S. to adopt federal guidelines for Medicaid expansion, but not accept federal money. And this is someone who ran against Obamacare mm-hmm. uh, when she did run for that. And she said she had this kind of this baptism by fire when she realized that, gosh, I'm lucky that Medicaid was extended in this state. There were a lot of states, uh, Caroline, who outright rejected this. They kind of thumbed their nose. Many of the poorer states that, that could have used this for help with their poorest patients. Many of the poorest states and some of the sickest states, the states with the highest rates of obesity, of smoking, of um, 
you know, early mortality really could have benefited hugely from the Medicaid expansion. Um, it was generally, at first, um, almost rejected across the board by Republican governors. Over time, some Republican governors did start start to change their minds. Um, I forget what the exact, at the end of things, how many had accepted the expansion and how many had not. Um, but you look at states like West Virginia, where people love it, and Kentucky, people love it. They love what it has done for them. They love the care that it's brought there. It's yeah, it's insured. And when has any state, even for ideological reasons, been in any position to just reject money? <laughs> You'd think that all of them would want this shored up. I mean, we have seen in the past that they've gone after the tobacco industry. The state attorneys general got together to get money that they thought were owed for the incidence of smoking-related cancer that had to be picked up by Medicaid. or And, and unusually, Medicare, as, as I understand that if it's still the case, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is decidedly federal, while Medicaid is a state-by-state mostly is it determined on a, on a kind of a block grant level? Medicaid is is definitely more state by state. Medicare is definitely more federalized. Um, it, it, and it, because Medicaid is a state by state program, it is run slightly differently in every state. What uh, right now the the current Congress would like to turn every state into a block grant program, which sort of gives a set amount of money and says, here you go, do what you want with it, cover your people. But the problem is that as costs go up over time, if unexpected events were to happen, anything like that, the block grants don't take that into account. So block grants just have a set amount of money, regardless of how many people you need to cover, regardless of of the conditions. So you're looking at, you know, five years out, that money not not being able to cover what it did when it was first distributed. Christy, was any private insurer willing to cover you? I mean, price, price notwithstanding? I mean, if you were theoretically willing to pay, I don't know, thousands of dollars a month. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, if I, if I wanted to pay those high premiums, absolutely, I could have gotten coverage. But like you said, it would have been $1,000 a month just, you know, for me. And um, who can afford that? You're bringing home $800 paychecks. You can't, you're spending your whole paycheck, if not more, on a health insurance plan. Were you in Virginia at the time? I was. And yes. so do, don't the states offer, on a state-by-state level, special situation coverage for people who otherwise cannot get covered? Um, I've seen it in Florida before. I, I sat I sat next to a an insurance executive once and said, oh, we'd rather let them roll off into those pools, these high-risk pools. Right. Um, uh, we were unaware of, if, if there was anything in Virginia at that time, we were we were definitely unaware of any of that. So. so you were making too much to qualify for Medicaid. Right. Your children were uncovered. Pretty much, yeah. And you were uncovered. I, I mean, we were COBRA'd, but it was, you know, with my, at the time, you're talking before, the Affordable yeah, Care Yeah, I'm Act. talking about, two, let's say, 2005 yeah. to 2010. Yeah. We were covered through, you know, my husband's insurance through his employer. But the coverage was with a big asterisk. I mean, if you had to go in for, Absolutely. for example, another surgery, do you have any idea of how much it would have cost if, if there was a recurrence yeah. of the tumor? Yeah, it, it, it was higher premiums. We, we saw quickly those those premiums with the insurance go up after the first surgery. After I only had one surgery, but after that first surgery and the treatments that Did year. Did you have a primary oncologist for when you were originally? This is what I would want to know. Like a mm-hmm. doctor or a hospital or somebody would intervene and say, I cannot in good conscience let her go back out into the wild with this in her system, even though we took... We did significant surgery. We took the tumor mm-hmm. out. She has to be tracked. She has to be followed. Is there yeah. any is there any kind of person to person fail safe in that where they're like, listen, no matter what happens, I'm gonna find a resource or maybe a VA hospital. I, this is not my expertise. I just really want to understand what your what your right. if then scenarios were. Um, I I had great 
I had great care. Um, I was through UVA Hospital. They did everything they could. I was sent up to Cleveland Clinic. I was sent to UPenn Hospital for treatment. And they all have their charity buckets. They call mm-hmm. it their, you know, people who can't pay, the indigent people, potentially migrant workers when they show up right. at an ER. But only to a certain extent, I imagine. I think it was only to a certain extent. And I think because I had, you know, I had the insurance that I had, they were... I don't know if they were even any part of that. Of course, like I said, once I started not being able to pay all the bills or I would be put on payment plans, the hospitals would very quickly just send me to collections. And But they kept covering me. They never stopped giving me coverage because bills were kind of going unpaid. Um, I never got treated in that way where they weren't going to... But to understand this, if you'd completely scrapped your job and went yeah. zero income and went really indigent, yeah. you could have been covered completely. What is that Medicaid coverage like? If you were not working, if yeah. you had no income, that I want to stress That would test be interesting. This. Can I, you know, actually, to be honest with you, when I was um, pregnant with my first child, I was on Medicaid because my husband at the time was in graduate school and the student insurance plan didn't cover pregnancy. So I was up in the state of Michigan and got Medicaid for that. And it was interesting because I was on that during my pregnancy. And then I got off of it when he got a job after graduation and we got on his health insurance plan. And there was a huge difference, I felt. And maybe it's just me. Maybe it's a personal thing in the way I was treated. How so? Coverage. Um, I was treated much better when I had um, a private insurance plan that doctors possibly knew that they were definitely going to get paid for than I was with Medicaid. When I was covered under Medicaid, I definitely got treated very different. And I think about that a lot because that question is a really good one. What if I was completely indigent and I was on Medicaid and I needed to have all these treatments? Would the oncologist have sent me to Cleveland Clinic? Would anybody have bothered to care for me the way... I needed to be cared for if it was a different type of insurance or it was a, you know, uh, an insurance that... I would would imagine that stigma aside, Medicaid is robust. It has the imprimatur of the state government and to a certain extent the HHS behind it, Caroline. Um, Call it something else, right? I've seen people in Whole Foods using SNAP cards, right? And then somebody commented to me, the cashier said, yeah, I mean, the, the people on food stamps are just as eligible for organic and clean food as the very wealthy person, you know, parking the, the Audi outside of Whole Foods and doing $200 of, of groceries. Um, Medicaid is uniquely stigmatized in this country. And I wonder, walk us back in the evolution of it, Medicare evolving versus Medicaid evolving. Was it a, was it a great society thing? Was it looked at as really the province of the poor and, and people who just did not want to work? I, I think you, you just nailed it there, was the difference between Medicare looking at it as something that people have worked for. We have a, a very strong meritocratic belief system that runs through our, our society that, you know, unless you've worked for something, you don't deserve it. And something like health care, you look at Medicare, okay, you've worked for it, you've paid for it. Once you get there, once you reach that point, it's acceptable. It's not looked at as you, quote, mooching off the system because you, you helped build that system. But for whatever reason, we don't look at insure. It, it's something about the way we view health insurance, not as a right, but almost as a, a privilege that we don't we don't view it as a right that everybody should have access to good, affordable care. Obviously, we don't or else we wouldn't be going through this right now. Um, and Medicaid, as compared to Medicare, people view it as I heard some a uh, congressman talking today saying, you know, well, there's able-bodied people on Medicaid, and that you know we should we should cut that out and and make the criteria more stringent so we don't have able-bodied people on Medicaid. Like able-bodied people can't have struggles. Like able-bodied people can't be poor and still need health care. 
I mean, it's it, there's some sort of disconnect that we view the only people who are deserving of help are those who are, you know, literally helpless children or elderly people. You know, they talk about raising the minimum wage, $15 an hour, raise the minimum wage. Have I mean, who can live off of $15 an hour? I think about that all the time. And I guess it depends on where you live, but that's really not a lot of money still. And if you have children with that and you're having to pay bills on $15 an hour and you're an able-bodied person working and you have the privilege of getting uh, insurance and you can add your children to your insurance plan and it's $800 a month, that's more than a whole paycheck. And so how, then how, how do you pay your rent? How do you buy your food? How do you pay for your electricity? Um, I don't, the disconnect is there. I don't think there, people are seeing how, you know, $15 an hour, that doesn't go very far in a 40-hour work week um, for a family. And, and, and to say that people on Medicaid, oh, because they're, they're just not working hard enough or, you know, or people who are lower, lower middle class and lower income that, that depend on Affordable Care Act and depend on the insurance plans and the competitiveness of getting a cheaper insurance plan. Um, that, that, that is something that, you know, we're working, we're working hard. Some of us two jobs, some people three jobs. And, we still can't afford a health insurance. I also feel like when you talked about the, the meritocratic kind of society, um, it is interesting to me how I always think about why, why is health care um, a form of capitalism in a way? But these insurance companies are competitive. I mean, they're in the market. This is a capitalist market with these insurance companies. How is this you know, a thing in our country that we have people that are dying that aren't getting the health care that they need. We have people that aren't insuring their children because they can't afford it. Well, the kids are healthy. Let's hope they don't break a leg. Um, but we can't afford to, you know, do we want to feed our children or do we want to give them health insurance? You know, people are having to make these decisions. In this country, it's ridiculous. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking about the implications, uh, real life, real world, in situ implications of the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. We're joined in the studio by Christy Albus. She's a cancer survivor, a mother of two boys. Um, she teaches junior kindergarten uh, as well, joined by Caroline Orr, behavior scientist who's covered health policy and is closely watched the evolution and potential uh, dissolution of the Affordable Care Act. Professor Orr, um, is it peculiar to the United States that people have come to kind of conflate your job with your insurance plan? I mean, what is it particular about your job? I can imagine if you worked in a mine, then you would you would think almost in a paternalistic way or, I don't know, you worked in a steel mill or in a more industrial time that they should pick up a big part of your insurance tab. But what should... Why should one have anything to do with the other? It's not a random sample of workers. It's not like it's bringing together young, paying-in people with older people who need it more. What makes that different from, say, a membership to the Audubon Society, if you wanted to buy health insurance through the Audubon Society? We really do have a unique health care system, and I I don't say that in, in a good way. Um, that's, that's not meant to flatter the U.S. We have... Um, among the most expensive systems in the world and also some of the worst outcomes. So we are, are paying much more. We are getting much less than you know, any of our, basically any of our peer countries or any of the other wealthy developed nations of the world. Um, why we have not looked to them as an example is beyond me. Um, you know, I, like we were talking about, some of it has to do with this idea that more government is bad. 
I, I think some of it is the packaging. Is I, I think we could easily sell a much better, yeah, you know, call it socialism, whatever you want to call it, a much better healthcare system if we just packaged it nicely and 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 sold it better. I think the Affordable Care Act would be immensely more popular had it been accompanied. What would have happened if they he just not touched this? For example, Obama decided he wanted his signature big contentious policy legacy to be on climate change or you know putting a man on Mars. So what if they just left the status quo? So that's circa that's, 2009, 2010. That's one thing that's really interesting to look at right now is we hear a lot about increasing premiums and premiums certainly are increasing however before the affordable care act premiums were increasing more than they are now so that's one thing to consider is you know as much as we hear about premiums increasing under the affordable care act before it was implemented Premiums were increasing more. So you would be paying more right now without the Affordable Care Act than with it on a national basis. Of course, that's, a, you know, things. But are these things kind of drops in the lake where it's not my problem? I can, I, you know, it's like the metaphor of uh, the frog in the water that's slowly boiling. You don't really feel it. Like, I, yeah, my employer HR will send out a thing saying, okay, the copay on prescription drugs generic goes up another five, ten dollars this year. You just realize in the back of your mind it's the cost of doing business. It's it's creeping inflation. Thank God I'm still insured. Do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't hit crisis level. For one thing, yes, this this healthcare debate has really tuned people's attention to healthcare, to costs more than they were before, which is I, I think that's a good thing. I, I think one problem with uh our healthcare system is that we are completely detached from the actual cost of care. Most of us might know our premiums or out-of-pocket costs. Most people have no idea how much their insurer is being charged. So, for example, how much you know would it cost for you to go into the hospital and have an appendectomy and have a two night stay in the hospital and you know get uh, IVs for 24 hours most most people would have no idea even where to start calculating how much that would cost and think about how different that is from going to the grocery store you know we know how much we pay for food we know how much we would pay for a car for a house but we don't have that same idea when it when it comes to healthcare. So we can't say, "Wow, that seems really expensive," or you know, "Well, let me see if it's cheaper at the hospital across town." We don't do that with healthcare. We have no. It's just a completely different mindset, and and that it's become such an abstract concept that I think that does make it somewhat easier to come up with these mythologies when it becomes these abstract ideas that are no longer tangible. Christy, take me back to where your head was when you realized that the Obama administration, you know, coming out of its first hundred days uh, in the wake of the financial crisis, was going to throw its weight behind significant health care reform. How did you hear about it? How did you watch it? What did it mean for you personally? I tell people, I remember when those votes were rolling in um, with ACA, and I remember just watching all night, waiting to see if it was going to pass. For me, it was the potential for my husband at the time to get a higher paying job, to have a job offer where he, you know, we were at the time thinking about moving to Raleigh, and he was going to get offered a higher position. But we couldn't. You were tethered to Cobra? We were in job lock, knowing that if this was going to be a position that was going to be better for us, would I be covered? And the answer was no, because of my pre-existing condition. So it was just going to put us in a place where we were going to be either paying really high 
high premiums or I wasn't going to be able to get health insurance. And then I'm not going to be able to qualify for well, this anything is, this else. This is a bit of an invasive question. I think it has to be yeah. asked. Was the, the conversation of like, well, do we reduce our adjusted gross income if we're divorced and I look poorer and then I'm eligible? Right. Were you potentially looking into a I mean, balance sheet divorce? I've, I've heard about those things in the past where – crazy. But I mean, we, we actually didn't go there in our thought, but I can't imagine that those conversations aren't or weren't being had. I mean, when you're in a desperate situation like that and you you're fighting for your life and you need medical care, how are you going to pay for it? I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, short of moving to Canada and getting citizenship at did that point. Did you consider moving? To yes, Canada? we did. Absolutely. What was involved in that? Um, I was a little nervous about that because I felt like because my cancer was so rare and the there were seven hospitals in the world that specialized in adenoid cystic carcinoma, UVA hospital being one of them in Charlottesville. And so I felt like if I go anywhere else, I'm not going to get really the care that I really need to survive this. And um, so that was kind of a concern for me there was what if we what if we did end up just moving somewhere where we can get coverage? And did healthcare? you put feelers out to Canadians or did you? <laughs> we kind of did, you... <laughs> did. Yeah, we talked to a lot of people <laughs> and doctors. And was there is there any research. kind of like, you know, when, when people are suing like attorneys will, will do like <laughs> venue uh, judge shopping and whatnot. I mean, did you do state shopping? Was there a state by state difference between Virginia and say? Let's say a really forward-thinking state. I don't know, a Connecticut or a Massachusetts. Yeah, or... we didn't. I don't think we we didn't do so much state shopping. We did more country shopping. Like I looked into Paris. <laughs> oh my gosh. We looked into Canada. You could um, pass for a Scandinavian. Right. Well, I'm Dutch, so oh. <laughs> I could do that. <laughs> but we did. We looked into the the other countries, to be honest, of what we could do. But then you know, then we've got to look at for jobs and. You know, we had a family, and I need to make sure I'm getting good health care for my cancer. And the- well, there, there is there is that paradox. Some Scandinavian yeah. countries you hear for time immemorial have a marginal highest bracket of what sixty eight percent, but it's a utopian society. They'll take immigrants in, they'll turn nobody away. There's uh, there's however many months of paid maternity leave and child care and lactation yeah. consultants on the state, but we have for whatever reason decided that. That is something that if you have the means to pay, you must pay. Uh, I had an, I had a child who arrived early, I was telling Christy, and we needed early intervention. And in New York, where we lived earlier, for some reason, the early intervention services, they never brought up your insurance plan or anything. It was understood that this kind of was universal and it wasn't destigmatized. And they didn't want poor mothers feeling like, oh, that's a luxury for my son, early intervention. So they pulled us all together and we had a great insurance plan. I was with Bloomberg and it was Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield, but it was irrelevant because they didn't take it. But then we moved to Virginia and every early interventionist, every OT asked for it. And you realize on a state to state level, while we had an improvement of life moving from New York in here and the cost of living is lower for whatever cultural proclivities or, or reasons here that early intervention is looked at as more of a luxury mm. or, uh, you know, uh, some stuff for preventative child care in a state like New York, where even in a financial crisis, Albany was was sanctioning this kind of block grant money. There are huge state-to-state differences in, in how, again, like going back to the Medicaid expansion, you know, whether or not states expanded criteria so more Why would people. they have passed the Affordable Care Act and given states a chance to opt out? Like, I don't understand. Was that what got it passed? The fact... It, so it was passed and the Medicaid expansion was part of it. The Supreme Court then afterwards allowed the Medicaid expansion to become a state option as opposed to But then a- the perverse thing is you're seeing certain states and counties have no more insurers left. Like if you look at the case of Kentucky and Mississippi and Arkansas, you read about this stuff in the Ozarks, you read about it in, in parts of Arizona, and the opposition has come and said that Obamacare is a failure because, look, you don't you have some places where no one can even buy anything, much less something that's affordable. But if you kind of had to force through a not fully baked grand sweeping entitlement plan, wasn't it almost doomed from the beginning? Did you worry about this going back five, six years? Yes. I, I didn't see it 
having this much backlash associated with it. But um, social progress has always come with backlash. And so I I did expect some degree of it. However, what I did not expect was the uniformity among our elected officials, primarily Republicans, in doing everything they really could to make it fail. You know, I, I don't think anybody would claim with a straight face that the Affordable Care Act is perfect, that there's nothing that needs to be done, that we should just leave it alone and it'll be utopia. I don't think anybody would claim that. But basically, if you're going to have a public-private partnership, you're going to have a system that is like the Affordable Care Act. You can't change it that much. Do you believe, and there are some conspiracy theories out there, I've, I've spoken to people who I respect sources who believe that what was planted in this was almost like, you know, Richard Nixon and Amtrak was, he, he designed it to fail or to kind of wither on the vine in five or six years. And if a lot of the full functionality kind of private market stuff failed and you defaulted to the Medicaid bucket and the expansion of Medicaid, over time, Medicaid would become a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger part of Obamacare until it eclipses it. Do you buy that argument that this was kind of a stealth Medicaid expansioning into universal health care? It's an interesting argument. Um, I think it was designed to work. I think, uh, yeah, I think President Obama wanted to have that legacy of having established a lasting healthcare reform. Um, I, I, I do think that after it was passed, we saw basically six years of one party in Congress and, and a lot of state legislatures working to make that law fail. I mean, when you hear things about, you know, death spirals, well, the Affordable Care Act is not currently in a death spiral, but the bill that was just released this week, if that gets passed as is, it will very quickly be in a death spiral because you're taking away the taxes that pay for it, leaving in the benefits. If that bill passes as is, all of the prophecies of death spirals will come true. Very so self-fulfilling quickly. prophecy. Yeah. And so while I have you on that, in the few minutes we have left, uh, Caroline Orr, you're you're seeing nowhere near unanimity, even within the GOP on this. I mean, there are people who are livid. Paul Ryan, Ted Cruz is like, you said repeal, you said scrap. You didn't say anything like keep these elements of it. So they're saying hell no. You're seeing someone like a Senator Cotton. You know, various other people, the ARP has come out against it. I don't know if I heard the American Medical Association. They're worried about a tsunami of people who are going to lose their coverage and that then this could affect hospitals that that kind of didn't plan for this stuff or they had banked on certain savings. They didn't expect for it to be this whiplashing. They've had three or four years to assimilate to this and change pricing accordingly. What are your predictions uh, with this over the next several months and, and maybe out into a year or two? Well, I, it, it it is interesting because you it, within now the the congressional GOP you have sort of two arguments against the the current bill and their complete opposite ends of the spectrum. You have some of the um, sort of hardliner conservatives who are arguing that it keeps too much of the Affordable Care Act intact, that it doesn't repeal enough of it, that they want to repeal every last provision of it and then deal with rebuilding it, maybe. Uh, The other side is primarily people, uh, Republican senators, especially from states with Medicaid expansion and other states who have benefited from the Affordable Care Act who see the potential for a lot of constituents to lose care, um, who see the potential, like you were saying, for rural hospitals to close. Uh, One of the things the Affordable Care Act has done through several mechanisms, for example, when people are uninsured and they do just show up at the emergency room, those costs you know, that they don't just disappear. <laughs> they get swallowed and absorbed by hospitals and, and, and states. So there is going to be some pushback um, from states, especially those that expanded Medicaid, 
who have the most to lose from this repeal bill. Um, I expect we will see something get passed because, you know, this has been six years in the making. It's it's all that we have heard that the Republicans would like to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So I expect they have to do something or else their political careers in their eyes will be over. But I... I would be surprised if we saw a full repeal of the Affordable Care Act. I'm going to quote that Standard & Poor's report again, Christy, before I come back to you finally. Quote, the proposed tax credits of $2,000 in the replacement plan, although not covering the entire premium cost for a 21-year-old, would reduce it by almost 75%. The proposed $4,000 tax credit for a 64-year-old falls well short of the potential premium cost, reducing premiums by only 30%. The analysts at Standard & Poor's expect the number of people with insurance through the individual market to drop by up to $4 million. which brings us to your case. In the few minutes we have left, tell us where you are health-wise, what the coverage does for you right now, what your contingency plan is, what's entailed for you if, if this version that you're seeing today goes through. I know you're following it closely. Health-wise, I'm doing really well. I'm just on uh, preventative care at this point um, as far as getting quarterly scans right now, which are still very expensive. I still get those medical bills that roll in that are a little bit high. Do you have high prescription costs? Um, I, I, no, not at this point. Um, about probably $50 a month I have as far as a prescription. Um, but as the scans are really kind of what get me because that bill will be about $3,000, um, about four times a year. Um, regular checkups about every six weeks with a doctor. And that's probably just going to be the rest of my life. Um, I feel like right now I I feel really safe. I feel protected with what I have now. Um, I have seen my premiums go down with what Caroline said. People talk about how the premiums went up with ACA. The premiums were way higher before ACA than they were now. So my premiums compared to before ACA is uh, astronomically different. It's amazing. Um, It's a a difference in me being able to pay, you know, an additional two bills, pay down two more bills than I would have been able to beforehand. Um, When you talk about you have an income where every penny is counted, in my household, every penny is counted. That makes a big difference. I have children that are now covered. They're insured. They're going to need braces. We have dental insurance. And instead of paying $800 to $1,000 a month, I pay $260 a month. And um, that that's huge for me. That is an additional $600-some dollars a month that I have that can go towards other things that I need. And um, I'm hearing them say, we're going to not take away where people can't deny you because of pre-existing conditions. I, I hear those promises. Um, I am watching this closely. I'm watching what they're doing closely. I'm not sure that that they are looking at people like me in their best interest. I think they're looking at the extremes. I think it, I think they're looking at people who are very healthy, who are well-to-do, and they they don't have a lot going on, and we need to help them because why should they have to pay so much when, you know, they're, they work and they're able-bodied, there's that word, and um, they're healthy and they take care of themselves. Why should they have to pay as much as somebody who's not working? And then they're looking at the very poor somebody who's not working, somebody who's able-bodied but not working, and they drink and they smoke and they don't take care of their body. So, you know, how is that fair? And I, I think that's where it's going. It's going to these two extremes. They're not looking at somebody who gets a, a weird cancer when they're 29 years old that they didn't ask for. And, you know, we're going into 13 years now of trying to figure out where my money's going to go and how I'm going to pay for all this. So they're not, I don't think they're really looking at people like me who are able body and work very hard 
and every penny is counted. And I do take care of myself. I didn't get cancer because I smoked three packs a day for 20 years. That's, you know, so the extremes, I think, are are what's going on right now. And these arguments that people are having and the middleman is not really being heard or being seen. And I'm not so sure I'm going to be represented in this, in these bills that are being passed and and these promises that are being made. And that's kind of what concerns me the most. You were listening to Christy Albus. She is a mother uh, living with cancer for 12 or 13 years. She's a junior kindergarten teacher uh, studying perhaps to go into occupational therapy and early intervention. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Thank you. As well as Caroline Orr. She's a health policy behavior scientist uh, currently finishing her doctorate at Virginia Commonwealth University. You go by RVA Wonk on Twitter. Is that right? That is correct. I'm so grateful to both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com, where please, please do like us. And holler if you'd like to sponsor. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.